This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Now it's all about whether or not you can qualify for the specialty and perform in there, which ultimately it's not Pollyannish egalitarian. That really is the only thing that matters. Can you do the job? Because I always thought I didn't care who was next to me in the cockpit. It's, are we going to get on and off the ship successfully tonight? That's all that mattered. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Welcome to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. We are delighted to be joined today by Assistant Secretary of Defense Sean Skelly, who is serving as the Assistant Secretary for Readiness in the U.S. Department of Defense. We're absolutely thrilled to have you today. For those of you who are going to be getting to know Assistant Secretary Skelly for the first time during this podcast, she was confirmed by the Senate to be the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness on July 22nd, 2021. And in this role, she advises the Secretary of Defense on the strategic and operational readiness of the armed forces. Prior to this, she served as a career Navy officer, and a qualified flight officer, and after leaving service, amongst other things, you served as a commissioner on the Commission for Public Service, and you are vice president of the group Out in National Security, which if listeners haven't checked out before, you ought to do so. They're fantastic. To get us started with our conversation today, I wanted to ask you first, what drew you to the field of national security? Aviation. Yeah. So I grew up on Long Island, which actually has an aviation history of its own. It was pretty prominent in World War II with several aircraft companies that are no longer with us, but were major producers of not only Air Force aircraft, but naval aircraft, which were key in the fight in the Pacific. So I saw a lot of aircraft around in Long Island, which included looking out my backyard and seeing the Concorde on its arrivals and departures from John F. Kennedy Airport for the transatlantic supersonic flights back in the day. Were they like super loud coming in? Uh, No. When they came for approach or takeoff that close to land, they were doing conventional speeds and they had to get a certain distance away from the coast before they could kick it in. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) I've, I've always wanted to fly the Concorde and then it, you know, is no longer in service. So it's aviation. I had some pretty key mentors. Yeah. One of my high school teachers was a highly decorated World War II bomber pilot. One of my music teachers was a then serving Army National Guard helicopter pilot. And my mother's family was quite close with some folks. The patriarch of the family had been a Marine aviator at Guadalcanal and uh, won the Distinguished Flying Cross. And his son was one of the very first timely now F-14 Tomcat pilots, the aircraft made famous by the original Top Gun movie. And both of those gentlemen became my mentors when I was in high school as to what naval aviation was about. My first visit to an aircraft carrier, to a night carrier landing practice in a dark field in the middle of Virginia and all of that. And the light went off and it was all over from there. I can draw a straight line from an experience as a 16-year-old to today. Wow. That's fantastic. Barely moves. Yeah. Your mentors played such a critical role. How did they show you about this world of aviation? What lessons did they impart to you as a young person that was interested in aviation and that line into national security? 
A, it was the excitement of the flying itself. It was flying, but the flying off of aircraft carriers, how unique that was, the esprit de corps that went with those that did it. Elite is not a word I'm especially fond of, but that it was unique. There were few people that could do it. And I'm still astounded to this day that I actually wound up doing the thing that attracted me at 16 years old and did it for a good period of time. I've had a great deal of fortune in my career. But I think, and I don't know that I've ever been asked this, what I took away in that early time, but I really think it was where I really got infused with how much you devote yourself to service. And that was the first form of service that I was introduced to. It was, you live for being in the cockpit. It's told, you want to be a ready room cowboy. You want to be there as close as you can to any opportunity to do the thing that you're trained and you'll eventually love to do. Always be ready to get into it. That has certainly stayed with me today. Now, now I term it, I live a life of FOMO, <laughs> right? I can't miss that meeting. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. younger me is like, let's go find an airplane and go, you know, be stupid within the rules and really get it done. And now it's, where's the next meeting and where are we going to govern things and how are we going to impart guidance and where's the read ahead? But it's always about being involved. And I know I was especially moved when I got to see Hamilton in uh, the room where it happens. I'm like, right. oh, that's my theme song. <laughs> it's, it was always, if you're going to serve, be in it and always be leaning forward, realizing that you have to be in it to win it, but you have to be prepared to participate. So that's always been my aspect. Um, I don't have much of a personal life. And sometimes that's actually been a hindrance in learning that balance is the greatest skill I've uh, still hoped to conquer. Sure. You've mentioned that straight line. I'd love to know about your experience, that moment where you found out that you were being called to serve as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness. What was that like? Um, dizzying. It was a Monday morning in April, early April 21. And I woke up and like all too many modern Americans, I reached for my phone and I turned my phone on and I still don't know and I haven't bothered to check. Was it a new email? Or did I just see the pop-up because I had turned my phone on and how long it had been waiting there for me? But it felt like I awoke, I reached for my phone, turned my phone on, and an email arrived. The White House would like to know if you have any interest in the nomination for the position of Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness. And I'm not sure when I exhaled after that. <laughs> some period of time, probably measured in minutes. And then I, without flinching, put my thumb on Google and said, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, type that out. And I think it was the first or second search return came up with the DOD directive that describes the position of Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness and the multiple pages that enumerates all those functions and responsibilities. And it was quite surprising. I'm like, oh, I'm familiar with that. I think I've actually done that. Yeah, I could check that box, not with a mastery of the entire portfolio, but the familiarity with it. It's like, well, I'm a product of professional military education. <laughs> I've been trained through the military. I've been a measured unit of readiness. I've been myself a unit readiness reporting officer in my duties. I'm like, I've got a degree of familiarity with a lot of this, but that doesn't change how impressed I was by what the job itself entailed from what I could tell from the directive, but then quickly was yanked back out of that very tactical sort of appreciation of things into the, oh my gosh, the White House has just asked me to enter into the nomination process and then the confirmation process and then determine how long I wanted to wait to reply yes. <laughs> so it's like immediately, is it like a five hour, like a couple days, sort of sensing each other out kind of thing? Yeah, yeah when, essentially the, a version of the modern dating experience. You know, <laughs> it's when, a three-day when, Yeah, when, when do I say thanks for a great time on the, on the text? 
So I decided to wait about an hour. Yeah, and it, okay. That was one of the hardest things I've done in years mm -hmm. was wait that long. Wow. Say, so, yes, I would love to talk to you about this. That's fantastic. And so when you decided to take on the role, what were your, what was the sense of your priorities going into it? Uh, upon being confirmed? Upon being confirmed, of course, yeah. Well, the nomination process and the confirmation process, surprisingly, once you go through it, you begin to understand. You don't really get into many of the details of what you're signing up for because there is a, a convention that you don't get involved in the day-to-day -day of the office of which you're being nominated for because there's a propriety that you can't presume to influence what's going on until the Senate confirms you into that position. So you get maybe an org chart, you get a handful of briefings from the folks that are actually in the room, and you get fed some information from the folks that are handling you between the White House and predominantly the department that's supporting you. So it was nowhere near as much as I would want if I were starting another kind of job. You know, back the truck up to me, dump it all on me, and I want to dive in deep before day one so I can come up with my, here's the first things I want to do, here are the people I want to talk to. You don't even begin to get that appreciation until you're actually on board in the wave of signing a lot of things. And finally, though that wave is pretty short, when you're a confirmed official, all the doors of the Pentagon literally open for you. You'd sit down and, hey, my email works. That's not right. So it took some time to gain an appreciation as to, um, I think the most important thing are the relationships you have in, in, in a position like this, any degree of seniority. Obviously, you know who you're reporting up to, and there's the org chart, but what are the day-to-day -day relationships? Where does the real information come from? Who are those key interlocutors, and how do you fit into... I showed up about six and a half months into a running, vibrant administration within the Pentagon and finding my place, you know, being behind, in a sense, with the shared appreciation that the other senior leaders or the acting leaders that were in place at that time had. How do you catch up to that to then actually begin to really move forward? once you've kind of achieved some degree of common appreciation for the expectations as well as understanding the issues that are at play. Because uh, you go right in, straight into the deep end. I was looking around for my water wings, but they weren't coming. <laughs> and being a naval aviator, I know how to what degree I am not an especially strong swimmer. <laughs> so what would you say now that you've been in the role for 10 months now, what would you say your key priorities are now? That's a great question. It's really about the aggregate combined effects of all the things that we have going on in the readiness portfolio. It's pretty diverse. I have force readiness, which is the actual measurement of the readiness of the force, as well as setting global force management policies, which has a very close relationship to the joint staff and the operating arms of the services, the threes and the like. I have force education and training which is everything from professional military education to the financial education of our troops so they can protect themselves out in the economy because they are often preyed upon. Right. By I didn't realize that financial education fell under your portfolio. Interesting. Yeah. Um, That's hugely important. To include training the folks, which includes now the priority of live virtual constructive training for the what we call the high-end fifth-generation fight in a joint and combined with our allies and partners environment, as well as I have for safety and occupational health which has to do with the operations of the force safely, you know, and we always have, unfortunately, plane and vehicle mishaps, mishaps at sea, but also occupational safety and health, which incorporates issues such as the forever chemicals and PFAS that the department is dealing with, as well as occupational safety and health, which brings relationships with EPA and OSHA and the like. I'm all over the map in that regard. So it's really about the relationships between those responsibilities and how you try to bring them together to a degree of focus. To what we have to do. There's a lot of discrete things happening all the time and it's looking for trying to describe a so what for the next six months, for the next year. 
Fascinating. If I could turn us to the decision that you want to, to talk about today. For those of you who are new to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast, we're using this space to explore the extent to which, if any, gender influences public policy decision-making and its outcomes. So Assistant Secretary Skelly, I understand that the decision you want to talk about took place in 2017 when you were a commissioner on the National Commission for Military, National, and Public Service. And the decision itself is about endorsing the recommendation to require women to register for the selective service system. Can you set the scene for us? What was happening at the time? I believe it was in 2016, in the final year of the Obama administration, which I was serving in at that time. The latter half of that year, I was the executive secretary at the Department of Transportation. So my national security pathway had taken a little bit of bump, not very far though, because there's a lot of national security happening in transportation. Congress and the armed services committees had considered the question of should women be required to register for the selective service? And lo and behold, it was going to pass out of committee positively because there was a majority for that issue that concerned some members of Congress. They decided to pull it out of the bill it was being considered in and as a compromise decide, have someone study that for us and give us a recommendation. So that was the core of establishing the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. The original core issue was the future of the selective service. Should it continue? If so, doing what? And if you're going to register people, who could potentially be subject to conscription? If the recommendation was to continue all of those things, there was really a long decision tree that included the recommendation as to whether all Americans should be required to register for the selective service. As I understand, it was the Senate that decided to wrap some other areas of service around the question of the selective service, which meant military service, the all-volunteer force, propensity to serve there, civilian service, civil service, as well as national service, things such as AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, and the like. And it was really, what is the state of affairs with America's familiarity with all the ways you can serve your country? And the propensity, what drives the propensity, which is the fancy word for how likely are you to actually try and close the deal? and serve in a place? How likely are you to try and to create a shared understanding? It really is, it was a fascinating journey of learning for me that I will be eternally grateful for because there's really a trip across America that we took to talk to Americans from all corners That's right, because society. the commission met all over the country, is that right? The mandate from Congress and the establishment law did include that we had to travel the country in some form or fashion and do things in public. So we went off on a tour using the census regions of the country to guide our stops. We visited all the census regions in some way or form. We did public meetings, which were essentially town halls. Generally went to a, a bit of an urban area as a locus point, and then we broke up and sent commissioners and staff members out to less urban, what some might call rural areas. We talked to folks who are in the military, elected leaders. We talked to civil society leaders. We talked to people who are in national service. We talked to public servants at federal, state, and local levels. We talked to military guard, reserve, national guard. I personally wound up in conversations with lieutenant governors of a state, mayors of a very small town. I was in a small children's library in like a 2,000 person town in the middle of Texas talking to a group of evangelical preachers about what they and their congregations felt about serving their communities and how that connected to serving the nation. I was in central LA, downtown LA, speaking with former gang members who were part of a charity there to serve their community and try and do gang intervention and community support in there. Talk with a philanthropist in his hotel 
because he did a lot of donation in a major northeastern city. And he came down from his penthouse atop the W Hotel down to one of the, the conference rooms in there to talk to us about what private philanthropy added to the equation of serving your country and your communities. That way, it was, it was amazing. Wow. So what were your key takeaways from that experience in those conversations? The things that we agree on and what matters as Americans in our relationship with fellow Americans, they are more than what we disagree on, vastly more than what we disagree on. I don't think that's a surprise when you look at the pretty valid, accepted public polling on many issues as to where the majority of Americans stand on things. And when it comes down to serving your country, serving your fellow Americans, decency with regard to one another, supporting each other, there's a huge degree of commonality there. The question is, what do you do with it? And how do you support that desire to support each other and what we sort of summarize as serve one another? Returning to the commission and the decision that we're talking about today. So the commission was largely set up to explore this question of women in selected service. Prior to that, women had been allowed to enter combat roles. And so this question of what that was going to mean for selected service, I mean, it was a big set of questions that had been sort of technically addressed earlier, but now it was the time for the bigger conversation of what this actually means for our society. So enter the commission, right? Exactly. Then Secretary of Defense Carter directed the department to examine the question of there were still about a 13 or so military occupational specialties that women had not yet been allowed to perform. Because over the years, the story of women in our armed forces goes back before our history. There have always been women on the line, whether it be Molly Pitcher and all those who picked up after their partner's husbands fell or those who disguised themselves in order to serve. We have evidence of that throughout our history. In World War II, where the women's corps came into being, we mobilized women in the defense industry for mobilization there. Women were brought into the uniformed corps to ferry airplanes, to train people, nurses, to do administrative functions under the guise of an appreciation to provide more manpower for deployment in combat service. And I think it was nearly a half million somewhere in that order of women that were in uniform. And then over time, post-World War II, those women-only corps began to be modified, consolidated. Nurses actually entered the services. Then I think that the Women's Army Corps persisted to like 1970 in my lifetime is amazing, right? But slowly the individual services began to regularly incorporate women, but usually in the specialties that they'd occupied starting back in World War II. But then if women were there, more specialties, more fields were open to them. What was the first graduating classes of the military academies? 1980, I think, was the first class. So in 76, the decision was made to allow them to assess as officers and go in in that way. I know my personal career overlapped with many of the advances. Women began flying tactical aircraft, but were not permitted to fly in combat-coded squadrons. When I joined in 1988 and when I got my wings in 90, and then I had a front row seat for the tailhook scandal that probably imparted some momentum to opening up combat aviation to women when it happened in 93, 94. And so I was a flight instructor for the first women to fly my aircraft in that way, which is a very informative experience for me, especially with regard to women being incorporated in additional occupational specialties, which Secretary Carter directed in about 2015, I think. Do you mind if I ask just that experience of training the first women? Did you have any preconceived notions about what women and effectiveness in these roles or, I mean, or just sort of didn't think that it was going to make... Because I had gone through flight school alongside women who were not going to go to the same aircraft that I did. There were certain aircraft, the land-based predominantly aircraft, some went into tactical aircraft that could and did train on aircraft carriers, but would not deploy as part of a carrier or wing for combat purposes. So we went through the exact same training, just their pipeline opportunities were limited. 
having had that personal formative experience of what it took for me to get my wings, which is a pretty hard slog, and seeing women succeed and have the same challenges and ability to see, succeed as I did was a starting point for all of it. I remember being on the receiving end when the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services, Dakowitz, which still exists to this day, came and visited my squadron in 1992. So I had been a salty fleet aviator for maybe a year and a half. And the representative came who was actually a local San Diego news anchor. Like, oh, wow, I've been seeing you on TV like multiple times a week for years. And here you are in my ready room asking me this question. And I think I was the sole officer representative. It was a smattering of enlisted folks and asked the question, why can't women do the job you do? I said, there's no reason. They most certainly can. And I qualified that. I remember at the time, all I really know is aviation. And I don't know what the difference is right here. So that really crystallized it for me there. I know folks, there's a lot of attended baggage around whether... Some people feel it's appropriate for women to be in the military at all or to do very many things that could bring a person at risk. And that's always been a consideration in the progress of women in fulfilling more and more military roles. It's always, you can't do anything below brigade level. You can only do certain specialties. And now those are all gone. Now it's all about whether or not you can qualify for the specialty and perform in there, which ultimately it's not Pollyannish egalitarian. That really is the only thing that matters. Can you do the job? Because I always thought, I didn't care who was next to me in the cockpit. It's, are we going to get on and off the ship successfully tonight? That's all that mattered. I might not hang out with you afterwards. I may think you're a knucklehead in the in-between moments. But can you fly the jet? Can you fight the jet? That's what my job was. And I had three other people in my aircraft. And that was the standard for me. Are you any good in the jet at your job? And then when I went back out to the fleet as a department head, some of the women that I had trained were out in my squadron, as were other women that I had not previously met, but went through the process that I myself had gone through years before. And some of them were great, and some of them were average, because we had plenty of average people flying airplanes at the standards that we needed. And some of them were outstand- absolutely outstanding and indistinguishable from anybody that I thought was, you know, as we used to say, bleep hot, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> in an airplane as we talk. Mm-hmm. So it kind of proven out for me in that respect. So when the commission itself went on the listening tour and preparing the report, how would you describe the discussion amongst commissioners on this central question? I have to praise the staff that supported us there. We were 11 appointed commissioners. Three were provided to the president by the legislation and eight to the majority and minority leadership of Congress. So for 11. Of that, I believe four of us were women. Five, I think, were women. But we came from a variety of backgrounds. If you looked at a picture of the commission, we weren't especially diverse ethnically. I think we were overwhelmingly majority white. And our age, some folks would point out to us, it was great when we talked to younger audiences, they go, wow, you people are old, yet you're talking about me and my generation. But a lot of us were parents. So we knew that we were talking about either our grandchildren or our own children, but they had a valid, very valid point. We were old. And that tends to be the case in these things, which I hope somebody will take a whack at it someday and appoint some younger members to something when they're looking at a nationwide issue, multi-generational issue. But we came from a bunch of backgrounds, from national service backgrounds, a former director of the Peace Corps and the Corporation for National and Community Service, national service advocate. We had a former Vietnam combat veteran who then served in the Selective Service Administration in its leadership. We had a reserve general officer and former member of Congress. We had former congressional staff members. Three of us who were women who served in the armed forces, a retired nurse, a former Air Force pilot who was the former undersecretary of the Navy. I was a career aviator. So we had a lot of background in that way. 
So we brought our own personal appreciations to this question, no doubt, but it was the work that our research team did in the plan to go out and visit the country, both geographically, demographically, as well as from the vantage point of perspectives, from faith communities, from veteran communities, from minority communities. I was moved by it and greatly informed by the people I talked to, sitting across table with a bunch of citizens from a town of about 700 people in the middle of Texas, a literal one horse, one street town. The conversations we had with them, coupling that with the conversations I'd have with a group of 30 active duty reserve and guard airmen at a guard air force base in Tennessee, all of them were part of a whole. I can't speak for everyone specifically, but I know we're all moved and informed by the appreciations that we got from folks because we spoke with them about service in general. We'd speak with them about different aspects of our pending report, questions that we devised for ourselves that we wanted to answer and then vote upon to turn into our recommendations to Congress. But we always got around to, let's talk about this selective service thing. In those conversations, I think of all the ones that we had were specifically the ones that informed my ultimately pending decision as to where I would come down on our recommendation to require women to register for the selective service. It played a big part in that for me. So the conversations you had around the country informed your decision to support. It did. Do you think that your being a woman impacted your decision in this space? It certainly impacted my contemplation of it and my consideration of it. Because as said before in the conversation, I went through flight school with women. That's because at that time, I identified as male because I happen to be, shocker, for folks on the pod, I happen to be a trans woman. So that was often front of mind for me in those considerations about making recommendations for women with regard to an experience that I had transited through identifying as a male, being treated as a male through that experience. Though my being trans led to me leaving service early, and you could see other podcasts for that, and numerous publications and the like. So I was really mindful as to through what lenses and experiences was I looking at this question because we were talking about half of the population of the United States making a recommendation that impacted them directly and indirectly, the entire population of the United States and its wherewithal to exercise and to protect our national security. So I was really mindful of that. I did this was not necessarily what someone else could be asked to do in that way. But as I described, who I am, who I understand myself to be, and what or who I represent definitely came into play in my recommendation there. A, it was my training, serving alongside women and their assumption, performance of roles they had been excluded from, their success in them, led to my appreciation of what we were learning about the ground combat roles specifically. And also, it really informed me as to my appreciation of talent and ability to perform regardless of whatever package it comes in was something I brought to the table, which was, I think, somewhat uniquely informed by my experience. Everyone's experience is unique. That might be why our fingerprints are all different. I don't know. But I feel it to be similar. Everyone's personal experience is as unique as their fingerprints happen to be. But I thought mine was certainly unique around the table in which we were having our conversations, which I was grateful for, that I thought I might have had a value add in my voice. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing these fascinating insights about the commission and your role and your decision-making within it. We are so grateful that you are serving as an Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Department of Defense and serving our nation in this capacity. And best of luck in everything that you're doing for the department and the nation. Thank you so much. Um, This job is the absolute honor of my life. I'm grateful every day I get to do it. Not immediately after the alarm goes off. (laughs) 
<laughs> By the time I'm inside the Pentagon, I am actually grateful to have this opportunity to apply myself to the responsibilities that I've been asked to perform. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.